Hello and welcome to the Day in Sports Podcast. We've got a packed show for you today. We're going to talk Monday Night Football, Colts, Chargers, break down that matchup for you, uh, touch on everything Yasiel Puig and Dodgers related, get to get into uh, my top seven teams in the NFL as of right now, uh, the Adrian Peterson story. Look at that from a bit of a different angle. And we're going to wrap it all up with my NBA preview, get you set for the hardwood, all that and more coming up on the podcast. You ask me here to have lunch, tell me you slept with Elaine, and then say you're not in the mood for details. Now, you listen to me. I want details, and I want them right now. I don't have a job. I have no place to go. You're not in the mood. Well, you get in the mood. Ah, good day and welcome in. We're always in the mood for details here on the Day in Sports podcast. Where can you find us? T-D-I-S underscore humblebrag on Twitter. That's meant to be ironic. We know it's stupid. The Day in Sports on Facebook or just thedayinsports.com. That's the best place to find all of our content, podcasts, posts, everything like that. We're going to start today with a little Monday Night Football rehash, a little Colts Chargers for you. And interesting game. It was a clicker night where you're kind of going back and forth between Dodgers, Cardinals, NLCS, and of course Monday Night Football. And looking at it, it did, and, and we have a, a link to ESPN posted up on the blog. It was a little bit of a disconcerting game for Colts fans in that they just looked flat. Some folks were, were asserting that maybe they were looking forward to the Peyton Manning reunion game next week with Denver. I find that hard to believe for a team that's in Indy's spot where Yes, they're four and one, but they're a young team. Uh, a lot still to prove for them, and maybe just maybe the Chargers are a little bit better than we thought they were. Looking great in the powder blues, of course, but four drives for San Diego of ten plays or more, which although they only end up winning nineteen to nine, worrisome for the Colts' defense that they got banged up and San Diego was able to control the line of scrimmage, have their way with them, and Indy has been making a, a decisive effort to get stronger on the offensive line, the defensive line, bringing in Pep Hamilton to run the offense and establish a power running game, and it, it worked to the tune of two victories over Seattle and San Francisco, two of the more rugged teams in the NFL right now, but last night San Diego able to get the best uh, of Andrew Luck and the Colts. The other thing is that folks want to, and I'm guilty of it as well, anoint Andrew Luck. We even asked on the podcast last week, who would you rather have, Aaron Rodgers or Andrew Luck? You know, Ben went with Andrew Luck. I uh, I stuck with Rodgers, but, but the question was brought up, and obviously we thought it was valid. Maybe, just maybe, we need to slow down a little bit with the Andrew Luck momentum, although he did have six drops from his receiver's just 18 for 30, 202 yards and an interception. So early returns on Andrew Luck is at least we see that he's human. Off night on his first Monday night football game. And then on the flip side, a guy that we collectively as a sports culture have wanted to bury, Philip Rivers, quietly having an MVP caliber season if Peyton Manning wasn't in the league. That's our disclaimer is take Peyton Manning out of it and Philip Rivers is having one hell of a year. 73% completion percentage, almost 2,000 yards passing so far, 14 touchdowns, five interceptions, and he's found a little something here with Keenan Allen, the rookie, I believe, third-round pick coming out of Cal, and fell down draft boards a little bit, maybe some character concerns, but he's been spectacular so far this year. 
23 receptions, 332 yards, two touchdowns, impacting right away for the Chargers and giving them a threat that maybe they haven't had in a big physical receiver since a Vincent Jackson and providing a compliment to Antonio Gates on the outside. And the other thing I think that's really helping this Chargers offense is Danny Woodhead. Now, you look at him, he's got the diminutive stature, doesn't blow you away with strength or a 40 time or anything like that. But coming from New England, he understands coverages, he understands pass blocking, he understands where to hit the hole, when and how, and just an excellent receiver out of the backfield, kind of a safety valve type uh, for, for Rivers. And, and when you have him and you've got Gates controlling the middle of the field and then you've got a, a new threat in Keenan Allen on the outside, then Ryan Matthews staying a bit healthier this year. The Chargers might really have something. I know DJ Fluker at right tackle is a young, talented guy that struggled in pass protection, but is starting to come around. And and if not for the 6-0 Chiefs and Broncos in their division, the Chargers would have a real legitimate shot at playoff contention. Maybe they do at a at a, at a wild card shot still, but but certainly they're they're in perhaps the toughest division in the NFL. But but I, but I like what the Chargers are doing. I like what new uh, head coach Mike McCoy is doing. Everyone seems more comfortable, and they seem to have their identity back. And, you know, we thought maybe Phillip Rivers just physically had lost it. That seems clearly not to, uh, to be clearly not the case. As I mentioned, his numbers and just his play has been spectacular. Flipping, flipping a little bit to the Colts, I mentioned Andrew Luck. I mentioned the six drops. Trent Richardson. Starting to be a little bit concerning. I know he struggled in Cleveland. I kind of, you know, ascribe that to people stacking the box, not respecting Cleveland's passing game. And I thought coming over to Indianapolis, things would be different. Andrew Luck calling the plays, Pep Hamilton designing an innovative run game, creating rushing lanes, and, and teams just moreover overall having to respect Luck and, and maybe only being able to put seven at most in the box. But Richardson, only 3.3 yards per carry as a Colt so far, over 61 carries. So about three, four games, we've had a decent sample size. And, you know, I'm gonna, I'm still waiting and seeing on this, but, you know, we, running back is an easily translatable, uh, the most easily translatable position to the NFL from college. And Richardson was just an animal at Alabama. And we have not seen that same explosiveness, that same one cut and gone type of agility and acceleration. So that's concerning. I, I hope for the league's sake that Richardson can get back on track because I think Luck and Richardson together would be one hell of a combo to watch if they're both working at maximum efficiency. Speaking of maximum efficiency, the Dodgers machine got rolling last night. And we're going to move into that just shortly on the other side of this break here. So Puig. Adrian Peterson in the NBA preview, plus my NFL top seven teams, coming up on the other side of the break. Welcome back to the Day in Sports podcast, TDIS underscore humblebrag, thedayinsports.com. Excuse the raspy voice, fighting through a little bit of a cold, but I'm doing it for you and our over 200 new Facebook friends that just liked us over the last day here. So we are blowing up and we're having a lot of fun with it. So hope you come along for the ride with us. We're going to talk 
Yasiel Puig, who's become a bit of a lightning rod in the major league, because he's so contrary to the kind of authoritative, almost paternal culture that we see in baseball that dates back to the 1800s, and there's a certain way to do things, and there's a certain uh, etiquette that, that, that you must abide by, a certain conduct uh, that is to be enforced, or else... I don't know what the or else is. I guess everybody else gets mad at Yusil Puig. But essentially what happened is six or six or seventh inning I was watching. Yusil Puig comes up. He's 0 for 10 in the NLCS up until this at bat and gets a pitch he can drive, sends it to the opposite field, stares at it because he thinks he got it all and, and thinks he knocked it out of the park. So he watches the home run, which had it been a home run, we probably wouldn't have as much of an issue with it, but it wasn't. So I understand the criticism there from a you-need-to-be-hustling-all-the-time type of standpoint. But what seemed to, to really rile people up is that he was clapping his hands and getting real exuberant after the ball lands, and he gets on his horse, and he motors around to third for a triple, and he's clapping, and he's got the crowd into it. And my question is, why is this a bad thing? Why, when baseball's, baseball playoffs are consistently getting outviewed in the ratings game by Monday night football, even Thursday night football, why does baseball want to repress the biggest, flashiest, most electric star that they've had in quite some time? This guy looks like Bo Jackson. He runs like him. He, he, he hits better, uh, from an average perspective than, than, than Bo ever did. He's got power. He's, an adventure in the field, to say the least, but he's got a gun for an arm. Sure, he makes mistakes, but he's 21 years old. He barely speaks the language. He came over from Cuba and had very little time in the minor leagues. So I just don't understand the inclination for baseball, air quotes, purists, to, to just kind of rain on this guy when he's bringing potentially so much to the sport, so much excitement, new eyeballs to the TV set, uh, including... Mine. I, I'm not the biggest baseball fan in the world now. Sure, my team is the Brewers, so they're always out of it. So, you know, easy easy for me to say, but I'm not going to watch the Dodgers unless there's something truly exciting happening. And I made sure last night that I did not miss a Puig at bat flipping between Monday Night Football and the Dodgers. So I had to come back to the television station every time Yasiel was up to bat. And, and to me... Baseball should be celebrating that, promoting that. When LeBron James came in the league, the NBA didn't ask him to kiss the ring and wait his turn. When Andrew Luck came into the league, they the Colts jettisoned Peyton Manning to get him. It's, sports are a young man's game, and the longer that baseball holds out against that, I think the longer they're going to struggle marketing their game. And honestly, the whole etiquette thing, he shouldn't stare at the ball, he shouldn't be so excited. Etiquette is generally for losers, and I don't mean you're a loser if you believe in etiquette. I'm just saying, when was the last time a team won and got real up in arms, got their feathers all ruffled by, by another player's etiquette, unless you get beamed by a baseball or something like that. But generally, those that howl about etiquette and respect of the game are those that end up on the losing side of things. So I think there's a little bit of fear of the unknown with Yasiel Puig. We, he, he's not familiar to us. He doesn't speak the language. He's different than than maybe uh, a Mike Trout type guy, but he's pretty similar to a Bryce Harper type in that he isn't bashful, talks a good game, but he also backs it up. And to me, 
respecting the game is play well. Show that you've worked at the game. And Puig hits, what, in the 330s? He had 20-some home runs and came up late uh, uh, during the season. So clearly this is a guy that cares about what he does. He clearly loves what he does. And he's a great player. And I, I don't understand how it's disrespecting the game when a 21-year-old can get up to the plate in the NLCS and slap a triple to the opposite field. Clearly this guy loves the game. Clearly this guy wants to be a baseball player, and maybe he doesn't play by everyone's rules, but to me, as sort of an outsider to maybe the more inside baseball purist culture, I find it refreshing. So I like everything that Puig has done. I'm really excited to see what he does next, and that's why I'll be tuning in tonight when Ricky Nolasco for the Dodgers takes on Lance Lynn. I'll take the Dodgers because I think... Uh, at least in Game 4 here, and I'll also take them for the series, but I'll especially take the Dodgers tonight because I think Chavez Ravine, the Dodgers stadium, really got energized by that Puig hit and by the Dodgers coming home. They're back in the series, just down 2-1 now. So I'll take L.A. to even it up tonight. And then on the other side of it, in the ALCS, you've got Justin Verlander versus John Lackey. I like the Tigers in the series. They should be up 2-0, if not for the ever clutch David Ortiz, say what you want about performance enhancers, and he's 37 and shouldn't be hitting like this. All the performance enhancers in the world don't lock you in for a clutch pressure moment like that. Uh, HGH doesn't, doesn't quiet the storm of the crowd behind you or all the pressure you're feeling, so I'll give credit where credit was due. Ortiz has always been a clutch hitter in the playoffs, but Fielder, Cabrera, the middle of that lineup, Mixed with Verlander going tonight, I think Verlander pitches a gem. I think the Tigers even it up. And I think eventually we're going to get Dodgers-Tigers in the World Series. And I couldn't be happier from just a just an entertainment standpoint. I know Ben, my, my normal podcast partner, wanted maybe like the Oakland Athletics, some of the smaller market teams and, and the teams that, that, that play the, the, the small ball and, and maybe aren't as marketable. But to me... I need the big names to latch on to. I need the stars, and, and Tigers, Dodgers would certainly give us that. So that's what I'm rooting for, and that's what I expect to see. So very much looking forward to the games tonight. But I want to get back, speaking of expectations, into the NFL. We do it every week. Back to the NFL, back to the sweet spot, back to the homeland. The Power 7, the best seven teams in the NFL right now in terms of who I think are the top seven Super Bowl contenders. Number one, not going to be a shock. The Denver Broncos, you've seen what they can do. The offense, they accidentally scored 35 points against Jacksonville. No, they, did, they didn't cover the spread of 26 or 27 points or whatever it was, winning 35 to 19. But you could just see they kind of eased their way through that game, knowing they were going to control the pace, control the game, Manning never looked uncomfortable, save for, for a little uh, early in the game where, where the Jags, give them credit, got a little bit of pressure on him. But Welker, Demarius Thomas, Julius Thomas, Noshan Moreno, all the running backs, how often can we say it? And good Lord, the best team in the NFL is getting Von Miller back. I don't know how you're going to deal with this squad. I think the only, well, there's always hope in the NFL because anybody can be beaten. We saw that with Denver last year, but I think the best chance for beating Denver is going to be what we've seen with Peyton Manning in the past. Get him in the playoffs, probably going to have to beat him at Denver, 
or in the Super Bowl. But either way, even in the Super Bowl this year, we have a chance and a good chance at having cold weather, inclement weather, and we know that that bothers Manning. He has some something like an 0-4, yeah, yeah, it's an 0-4 record in the playoffs when the temperature dips below 40 degrees, so clearly weather has been something that's bothered Manning over the past. Now, you could say, well, he had to play some pretty good New England teams, but nevertheless, he struggled outdoors, in the cold, in the elements, in the playoffs. That's a concern to me, and that question won't be answered about Denver until December, January. Number two, I'm going to go New Orleans. Listen, I, I know they lost, but nine out of ten times they win that game. They gave Tom Brady about three chances at the end to win it, and eventually he did. But offense struggled a little bit in New England. Jimmy Graham wasn't quite right. I love that offense, though, with Graham and Sproles and Colson and, of course, Breeze. And then the defense has really been the story, allowing just 17 points per game under Rob Ryan and his beautiful flowing locks, which we saw way too many shots of in that New England game last week. Third, I'm going to put the Chiefs. I know their offense isn't sexy. They don't score the ball very well. But look at what Alex Smith did with the 49ers two years ago. Took them to 13-3 and with great defense and special teams. That's what this Chiefs team is absolutely built on. The defense allowing 10.3 points a game. That's almost on pace with the Baltimore Ravens, who allowed, I think, 162 in their all-time single-season record season back when they had Trent Dilfer and, and, and Ray Lewis and won the Super Bowl back in 2000 or 2001. Number four, I'm going to put Seattle. I I love their home field advantage. I love their defense. I think maybe it hasn't played to the level of the Chiefs' defense quite, but it's right there with Kansas City. And you get Russell Wilson. You get Marshawn Lynch. Percy Harvin maybe back in the fold, starting to feel a little bit better. So Seattle is a team that nobody wants to rumble with. You're probably going to think it's too low. I'm going to put New England five. I know they beat the Saints. I know they beat the number two team on my list here. But like I said, they kind of fell, you know what, backwards into that game. And I just can't. They, they're going to have to prove it to me in the playoffs. Maybe that's not fair. But Belichick and Brady over the last eight or so years just haven't quite been the same in the playoffs. And now this year, I mean, it's not Gronkowski and Hernandez and Welker. It's Kembrell Tompkins and... Everybody else, LeGarrette Blunt, Stephen Ridley kind of just found his way in the last game, and a lot of other unproven receivers. So I'm waiting on New England, and really my team that I put sixth, I wanted to put above New England, but they've struggled offensively as well, finding a rhythm. San Francisco, I'm going to put it six. The defense is good, and it's getting reinforcements. Their, their two rookie draft picks, Tank Carradine and Quinton Dial, are coming off the pup list, physically unable to perform. They're going to get cornerback Eric Wright off that same list, and Mario Manningham will come back also this week, hopefully joining practice off of a knee injury. So weapons coming back into the fold, some depth coming back into the fold, and I think this team is getting healthy and starting to get in gear at the right time. Where in years past, over the last couple of years, maybe they started real hot, 13 and 3 two years ago, 11, 4 and 1 last year. Now maybe they start getting, get rolling and get hot at the right time and hit their stride at the right time. So I like what San Francisco is doing. I had a debate between Indianapolis and Green Bay for the last spot, but I'm ultimately going to go with Indy. I, I, I love Andrew Luck. I like Trent Richardson. I, like I said before, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see on him. 
Reggie Wayne's still very good. T.Y. Hilton gives him a vertical uh, sort of explosive element. I like what Pep Hamilton is doing with that offense on the whole. I'm not going to take too much out of a out of a primetime cross-country game against the Chargers, so going to go with the Colts at number seven. Just missing out were the Packers. I think they're going to get rolling here. Aaron Rodgers is just too good not to get that team, but but the Packers fall just outside, so I've got just a recap. Number one, Denver. Two, the Saints. Three, the Chiefs. Coming in at four, the Seahawks. Then New England, San Francisco, and the Colts round out my power seven. Now, a team that is nowhere near the top seven, but has certainly been in the headlines, is the Minnesota Vikings, and, and primarily because of the horrible story surrounding their superstar running back, Adrian Peterson. And I don't want to get too involved with this. I think it's fine for everybody to have their opinion on this. But I've heard a lot of sort of vitriol directed at Adrian Peterson, either because he didn't know that he had the son uh, until just, you know, before before the, the two-year-old's untimely death. He, you know, wasn't a father to the child, wasn't paying child support. The mother had just taken a paternity test, uh, is what has been reported. So Adrian didn't even know that this was his son and then finds out about it. And then I also saw a lot of criticism that he shouldn't have played. He reacted the wrong way. He didn't look broken up enough about it. I'll say this. There's no wrong way to deal with grief. As a new father myself, I don't know what I would do. I certainly wouldn't be able to play in a football game. If you're able to function at that point, more power to you. Certainly, it's not the most wholesome thing that Adrian had this son, didn't know about him, but it's time when something like this happens, in my opinion, to just hit the, you know, just pump the brakes a little bit and give the guy a break. It's sad either way, whether you knew you had the son or you just found out. It's traumatic. It's shocking to find out, oh my gosh, I have a son. He's been brutally beaten by just this despicable human being and for us to heap criticism on adrian in the midst of this confusing tragedy there's no way for him to act that would be right there's no appropriate way to deal with the unfathomable loss of a child much less a child that you didn't that that just came into your consciousness a few weeks ago so i think we really need to back off on that let the guy do what he does let him deal with the loss however he sees fit because really, it's it's not our business to tell Adrian what type of father he should be or how he should deal uh, with, with, like I said, just such a tragic and, and senseless thing. So that's my two cents on that. I don't want to get buried on that. I actually want to move now from such a sad topic to something that's more uplifting and exciting. The NBA season is, I believe, 14 days from tipping off, and I couldn't be more pumped. I put a long, expansive NBA preview up on the blog. I gave you the Eastern Conference. I gave you the Western Conference. I gave you who's going to win every award and who's going to ultimately give you, uh, uh, win, the, win the championship. I'll just give you the Cliff's Notes version of the preview and, and just talk a little NBA because we haven't hit on it very much so far in the podcast. And what I'd like to do is just talk about the, the teams that I really think are going to be able to compete the teams that are really going to be there at the end. So I'll give you first uh, my playoff matchups, and then and then we'll get more into the, the who's a legit contender. So in the Eastern Conference, I've got the Heat playing the Raptors in the first round, the Pacers playing 
the Pacers at the, the the Heat with the one seed, the Raptors with the eight seed, Pacers at the two seed playing the seven seeded Pistons, the Bulls three seed with the return of Derrick Rose over the the upstart number six seed Cavaliers, and then the four five matchup is the Nets and the Knicks over in the West. I've got the one seed Clippers playing the eight seed Trailblazers with emerging Damian Lillard. The two seed Warriors, Golden State Warriors, who surprised everybody last year. They're going to play the seven seeded Timberwolves, who are going to be making a return to the playoffs after a, a quite a hiatus. And then I've got Dwight Howard and his new team, the Rockets, at the three seed, playing the number six seed Grizzlies. The Grizzly Grizzlies, who are there every year, playing in the grindhouse, playing defense, rebounding. And then I've got the five seeded San Antonio Spurs, who are going to milk their way and rest their way through the regular season, playing the four-seeded Thunder in the first round. What a first-round series that would be. And then, look, let's let, let, let's talk about the teams. Let, let's eliminate teams that aren't going to compete out of that group for, for, for a championship. The Raptors, no way. The Pistons, no way. The Cavaliers, no way. Not ready yet, I don't think. And then I'll even knock the Knicks and the Nets out. The Knicks, because they're too offensive-minded, with Carmelo and Bargnani and Ray Felton, they just they just have too many guys that are shoot first, second, and third guys. They don't facilitate enough offensively. Defense is an absolute afterthought. I love the Nets roster. I love that Karolinko is their sixth man. Love Darren Williams as a A minus type player. Joe Johnson, Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett. The names are great, but I think ultimately it's an aging roster that that's going to have. Too many issues with chemistry and pulling everything together to ultimately really challenge the cream of the crop in the East. And I really think the Heat, Pacers, and Bulls are kind of all on par with each other. Any of those three teams I could really see coming out of the East. On the West side of things, Trailblazers are not going to compete for a championship ultimately. Neither are the T-Wolves or the Grizzlies. But I think the Clippers, Warriors, Rockets, Spurs, and Thunder, all very legitimate chance at making the finals and, and maybe even ho- hoisting hoisting the Larry O'Brien tr- trophy. Unfortunate that I have the Spurs and Thunder matching up in the first round, but somebody's got to be in that 5-4 matchup. And I just think with Russell Westbrook milking that knee injury, not milking, nursing that knee injury, coming back, he's going to miss about a month of the season. The Spurs, like I said, kind of tend to coast through the regular season, so it's feasible that they could match up in the first round. Now. What do I have happening in the playoffs? I'll go straight to the East Finals and the West Finals. I have the Heat playing the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals. I have the Spurs running all the way through and playing the Rockets in the West Finals. And I just think if you look at first the Eastern Conference, I think the Pacers are very, very close to the Heat. I even think they're better than the Bulls. The reason I like them more than the Bulls is I like a team centered around a guy like Paul George, who's a six-eight wing, athletic, can score, can lock down uh, the team. You know his opponent's best uh, uh, offensive player, and I'm not sure Derrick Rose brings that as the focal point of the Bulls' attack. And I think the Pacers maybe just have a little bit more size, a little bit more fluidity, and bringing in Luis Scola, C.J. Watson to the bench really is going to bolster that unit, which was terrible last year. But ultimately. The Heat bring in Michael Beasley, who's going to be a good stretch four off the bench to score. They still have Ray Allen uh, uh, filling the shooting role off the bench. Then they've got, of course, the big three, Wade, 
Bosch, and the best player that we've seen since Jordan, LeBron James. Mario Chalmers, Norris Cole aren't asked to do very much at the point position. So I just like the Heat to beat the Pacers again in the Eastern Conference Finals, again, probably in seven games. And then over in the West, I've got Spurs, Rockets, and ultimately, I like both teams to get to that point because they have so many teams are going small ball. You've got the Warriors and the Thunder uh, and even the Heat over in the East that like to play that small ball lineup, but the Spurs can come at you with Tim Duncan and Splitter, and the Rockets are going to have Omar Ashik if they don't trade him, and Dwight Howard, of course, manning the center position. So I think inside, both those teams will have enough to, to advance and, and kind of have a matchup advantage and, and and look, I understand nobody likes Dwight Howard. I don't like Dwight Howard. I'm a diehard Laker fan, so you can imagine my sentiment on the issue. I'm actually glad he's gone, but that's just from a character standpoint and a, a personal sanity standpoint. I could not watch one more press conference, but Dwight's an excellent player. I think if healthy, which is a big if, but I'm going to roll with it and say he will be, if he's healthy, and I think if he's happy, and that's a smaller if because I think he will be happy playing in a younger team where he can be more of the man alongside James Harden and grow with that team, I think the Rockets are going to be really hard to deal with because they've got now their man in the middle to patrol the defense. They broke the regular season record last year, I believe, for most three-pointers in the season. They've got probably the best two-guard who's going to supplant Kobe Bryant uh, coming off an Achilles injury at age 35. James Harden is going to is going to be the best two guard in the league. Jeremy Lin is a good creator off the dribble. He needs to work on his outside shot. They've got Chandler Parsons. So look, this is just a really deep team with elite star talent. They've got the two guys that you know generally in the NBA you want two to three stars that you can absolutely count on for to carry the scoring load, to carry the defensive load. And they've got Howard. They've got Harden. And they're deep, too. They've got Patrick Beverly, Francisco Garcia, Aaron Brooks, Omri Caspi, Terrence Jones. They've got athletes. They've got shooters. They've got rebounders. All that said, I think in a seven-game series against the Spurs, I've written off the Spurs every year for like the last four years thinking they were too old. But what I saw from them last year in the playoffs and in the finals, I just can't get out of my head. I'm going to have the Spurs beating the Rockets to advance to the finals and take on the Heat because... Tony Parker is now a, a superstar. There's no other way to say it. He's a perennial MVP candidate. Tim Duncan, probably along with Marc Gasol, was the best post player, the best center. I know he says he's a power forward, but he's a center. Was probably along with, with, with Marc Gasol, the best center in the game last year. Ginobili certainly has fallen off, but they brought in Marco Bellinelli, who's a little bit younger and brings a lot of that same offensive-minded, kind of willing to shoot and gun it and create. And then... Kawhi Leonard, I think, is the kind of the sneaky key piece to the puzzle for this Spurs team because he brings youth, athleticism, he can score, he slashes rebounds, he can shoot, and he just fits that Spurs culture. He doesn't say anything, he works his butt off, and he really is a guy that can give LeBron trouble if, if they were to meet in the finals. He can he can man up on Kevin Durant. He can even take time on, on a guy like Russell Westbrook. So he gives him so much defensive versatility. And then Parker and Duncan and guys like that can carry the offense. 
and then Leonard can chip in his 15 or 17 points there. So I like the Spurs. I like their depth. And the Spurs just have guys that, that define the idea of being a role player. They've got veteran forwards, Boris Diaw and Matt Bonner coming off the bench. Diaw is just there to body up on guys defensively, to be a good passer, which he is out of the post. Bonner is on the court for nothing other than shooting the three ball, and he gets plenty of open looks off of Ginobili and Parker and Duncan and Leonard. Then you've got Danny Green, who played fantastic for, for the first maybe half of the finals, the first three, four games last year, is an absolute marksman, again, a good defender. Green and Leonard out on the perimeter along with Parker. Parker is is 30 or 31, so that trio is still young, athletic, quick, and makes up for, for some of the veteran legs that they have on the rest of the roster. So I love the mix. And then, of course, you have Greg Popovich, the worst interview in sports, but maybe the best coach in sports. And in a sport where... Coaching is so often an afterthought, so often thought to be unimportant. And with some teams, maybe it is. But with the Spurs, with Greg Popovich, he is the linchpin of that team. I'm telling you, they don't win four titles without him. Maybe they don't even win two, and they certainly don't get to where they got last year. And Greg Popovich is the reason that I'm going to pick the Spurs over the Heat in a finals rematch to win it all. I think if you give him and Duncan and Parker another chance at the same team over the course of a seven-game series. They're going to be rested like they always are throughout the regular season, and they're going to find a way to beat the Miami Heat. And and, and no disrespect to the Heat, LeBron James is the best player in the world, but we've seen Dwayne Wade's inability to stay healthy. I know everyone's saying he's healthy now. That's great, but it's the preseason. Chris Bosh is a very, very good forward. He's not great. Michael Beasley, I do think they will get whatever's left out of him. I just think, ultimately, this would be their fourth straight trip to the finals. That's a lot of extra basketball. The way the world is on James, I think he wins his, his fifth MVP this year, but ultimately comes up short. So I like the Spurs in seven games to beat the Heat in the NBA Finals, and the San Antonio Spurs are your NBA champions. I mentioned. LeBron James is going to be your MVP. I just think that, you know, you see his player efficiency rating almost always leads the league. You're going to get at least 26 points, 27 points, 7 rebounds, 7 assists from him every game. And, and he's the best defender in the league. He can defend the most positions. He's an excellent passer. He's everything. He's the best we've seen, like I said, since Jordan. And if he doesn't win the MVP this year, it will either be because of voter fatigue, like we saw when Derrick Rose won the MVP, or because he has an injury, which, knock on wood, he's too good for the NBA. I hope that doesn't happen. Let me just give you the rest of my awards here. I like Ben McLemore uh, from the Sacramento Kings as your Rookie of the Year. Probably the most talented rookie that came out of what was a what we think was a weak rookie class this past year, but he's got good scoring ability. You saw him at Kansas play. Uh, well at times when he would assert himself. He played great at times, but can jump out of the gym. Really good shooter from range. Probably needs to work on the in-between game, but I think on a team where shots will be available with the departure of Tyreek Evans, Ben McLemore for the Kings is going to be your rookie of the year. Most improved player, always hard to predict, and that's kind of one of the fun things about the award, but I'll take Derek Favors uh, from the Utah Jazz. Paul Millsap and Al Jefferson vacate the front court, so 
It'll be Favors and, and uh, Ennis Cantor manning the front court, so he'll get 8 to 10 more minutes a game. He's only 21 years old. Sky's the limit for Favors. He's got a ton of athletic ability, so the Jazz aren't going to be a good team, but I think you'll see some promising steps forward from both Cantor and Favors. Favors is your most improved player. And then finally, sixth man of the year, the Pelicans. Yeah, we got to remember to say Pelicans. The New Orleans Pelicans, Ryan Anderson. He's going to be playing behind former number one overall pick Anthony Davis, but he's going to get plenty of time playing alongside him as well. He is a deadly three-point shooter. He's the definition of a stretch four. Tyreek Evans comes in. Drew Holiday comes in. Anthony Davis. That's a really promising young team that I almost wanted to pick to make the playoffs, and I think Anderson's a big part of it. I think maybe their youth and, and chemistry keeps them just on the outside looking in, but I think Anderson has a chance, again, to score 20 a game, to be a knockdown shooter from outside, and it's kind of underrated in the other aspects of this game. So that's that's our NBA preview. I promise you we'll get more into it as the season progresses. You can also see my NBA first, second, and third teams up on the blog right now, up on thedayinsports.com. That is going to do it for me today. Uh, I speak for Ben Sherman when I say I know he wanted to be here today, but sometimes there just isn't a car in the driveway and you can't make it out. But I assure you we've been in text contact. We are planning to bring you a great podcast. We'll record it on Thursday, probably put it up on Friday. Thank you so much for joining us on the Day in Sports Podcast. We're going to keep bringing you the best content. You'll always get our perspective from our point of view. We hope you had fun. Check us out next time on the Day in Sports Podcast.